Welcome to the Legendarium, everyone. Take three. This is uh, this episode is quite the undertaking, as it turns out. Uh, we tried to do some fancier version of this recording, but uh, we're going to go with the Zoom version now because the other software wasn't working so well. So I am Craig, your host, uh, here with I what I hope and believe will be a very interesting episode. I'm uh, joined by AP Canavan, uh, the or I shouldn't say the critical dragon because there is something somebody out there. You are a critical dragon on YouTube, and we are thrilled to have you here with us. Welcome, AP. Thank you very much, Craig. It's a real pleasure to be here, uh, and for the third time of trying to record this. Hopefully, this this will uh, work out. So because I'm I'm excited to talk about fantasy and and the genre with you because I know your your interest in Tolkien, but also bigger than that about what the genre is doing. And Tolkien is central to it, but there are other elements that have influenced the genre. Absolutely. And that is largely what we will be talking about. Although who knows, who knows what, uh, you know, little will of the wisps will be chasing off into the woods. You never know. So uh, the other guest that we have uh, joining us from uh, an, an equally exotic location, AP is in Belfast, uh, and uh, this one's from Fort Collins, Colorado, is Drew McCaffrey from Inking Out Loud. Hi, Drew. Yep. Hi, Craig. Good to have you back. Uh, I won't repeat all of the insults that I had for you on take two. We'll just, uh, I'm just going to give you a break from that and just rest assured everybody listening that, uh, that I have lots of insults for Drew, uh, that, you know, he's, he's the worst and everybody hates him and okay, we can leave it there. All right. No, uh, today's, oh, but I should say before I get into today's topic, I am, uh, begging all of you to go to thelegendarium.com, especially if you are or will be in the vicinity of Portland, Oregon at the end of May, because we're doing a Legendarium meetup uh, in Portland, I think on May 28th. And you can find details if you go to the, what, the Legendarium Con link at thelegendarium.com. How was that for confusing? All right. So yes, please go check that out. You can also find links to the Discord server where you can join in the conversation in what is, and I mean this quite literally, the nicest corner of the internet. Um, and you can also find links to our Patreon there if you'd like to support the show, O Valley of Plenty. Okay, so gentlemen, take number three. Let's try to get into this. We were, I, I, I am pretty sure that AP was saying some really interesting things when we tried this before. <laughs> Uh, but but we couldn't confirm because the connection issues were were pretty bad. But uh, let's let's introduce this again. The topic, and I'm reading this off of the email that AP sent to me about uh, what his PhD is in. It's on the narratological impact of role playing games on the fantasy genre and how they shifted the genre meta text. Now AP sent me this email and said, hey, you know, here's what my my PhD was in, and. Um, I, I had a reaction that that I, I could describe, you know, as inappropriate for a podcast setting. But really, what I'll just say is I, I got really excited. I that sounds so interesting. Okay, so let me read that back for you. The narratological impact of role-playing games on the fantasy genre and how they shifted the genre meta text. AP, what does that mean? <laughs> well, very simply put, um, we have an impression about what the genre is, what the rules of the genre are, how it's structured. And so much of that was tied into an understanding of what Tolkien did. But 
my argument in the PhD was after Tolkien, there have been other texts that have actually changed what we see in the genre and what the, the sort of the paradigm of the genre is, whether you want to call it a paradigm shift or a step change. But one of those key texts that is often overlooked, particularly in literary circles, would be role-playing games and how role-playing games influence computer games and how computer games and that entire construct of storytelling and narrative and the perception and reception of fantasy has actually had a very significant impact on the genre and the type of storytelling that we have there, which is not coming from Tolkien. It's actually a change from Tolkien. And it's not to do disservice to the impact that Tolkien had. He is still a very key figure, but role-playing games changed some of the rules, sometimes subtly and sometimes actually quite radically. And we sometimes overlook that because we never think in terms of literary evolutions of narrative in different media, narrative in different forms. So a very simple, straightforward example of this. Before Tolkien, there were uh, there are incidental texts and there are texts that have, say, active magic, where you have spell casters casting spells and what has commonly sort of become known as a hard magic system. But it was never rigorous. The, the magic in Tolkien is numinous, uh, or what we now call soft magic. But in between Tolkien and the modern genre, you have role-playing games, which codified a magic system. We did not talk about magic systems before role-playing games because role-playing games took the idea of magic and went, here are the rules. You need these rules as a player because it gives you repeatable effects. You know, I have to do X in order to create Y because you need that as a mechanic in a game. Do we understand how Gandalf uses magic? No, you don't. You, you have no need to understand Gandalf's magic. He is just a wizard. He just does things. And so when we think of the focus now on magic must be a magic system, even putting the word system in, before you consider hard magic or soft magic, using that word system in combination with magic is entirely due to role-playing games. And because magic is so central to, the, to a lot of the genre, you can see that that's coming from games. That's not coming from Tolkien. This is really, really interesting. And I, you know, we talk, uh, Drew and I are uh, big fans of and beta readers for Brandon Sanderson. And you know, obviously we talk about Brandon a lot on this show. And one of the things that comes up a lot in discussions of say Mistborn is uh, people will say, this feels like I'm playing a video game, the way that the characters use the magic system. It feels like I'm playing a video game. It's so exciting. It's so visceral. We've talked about that, uh, you know, years ago on this podcast. Um, it, so you mentioned that the computer games, or, or we'll just call them video games, okay? So sorry, console yeah. people. Take it easy, console people. Um, <laughs> that video games took these rules from role-playing games, things like Dungeons and Dragons and, and uh, you know, all of their many, 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 many imitators. Um, is, there, is there any difference in, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm getting to a point, I'm getting to a question here. 
we we talk about okay this feels like a video game this obviously is informed by or you know has in mind video games is there any difference between that and a role-playing game um and the rules that are set up or the 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 way that these writers are are writing their books or is it is it a very very solid through line between rpgs and video games well when you when you think about it so RPGs, when they were created, provided mathematical models for uh, like random number, uh, random number generation hmm. of using dice to decide whether or not something was successful. That's a mathematical and statistical computation. What are computers really good at? Exactly that same computation. So when you program a computer game, you go, I need a definitive list of what the character can do. But within role playing games, because yes, that is a component but you're also dealing with real humans who are sitting around the table and a games master or DM or even a group of players can homebrew. They can choose to yeah. ignore rules. They can apply rules differently. They can tweak things. You can't do that with a computer game. Mm. But what you find was a lot of um, people who played and experimented with computer games or sorry, with role-playing games were also people who were, on board with some of the very early computer programming. And so a lot of that statistical modeling for effects was we can make a game out of this. And using that idea of computation, uh, you could create game variants. And then that becomes consolidated because the flexibility of what a computer model can do is obviously less than what the human mind can do. Because you can, you can say, oh, that rule doesn't apply at this moment. You can't do that in a computer game because you, you, the, the game, the program needs to have finite boundaries. And so you can see that it, it's a parallel sort of construction where you had overlapping um, membership of these different groups. And some of the earliest computer games drew from what role-playing games were doing as using this as a, a model, a statistical model for how to do conflict resolution. The idea that how much damage can you do to a character and a health bar and all of these things that you can see very clearly in role-playing games that then come across. Yeah. And of course, both, both sort of ludic strategies have evolved and diversified over time, but you can trace it back to those initial different um, war game constructions that have been around since the 19th century war games and using dice and various methods of statistical comparison have been around since the 19th century but it was a dnd &D and advanced dnd &D that took it and morphed it into uh, fantasy and then from that the creation of reusable settings and fantasy worlds the creation of all of these things where they drew on existing fantasy texts like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings or Vance's Dying Earth. They drew from that to create an experience and then that inspired imitators and inspired other people to do different variations. I'm so, glad you brought up Dying Earth there. I, I feel like Vance gets lost in the mix so often but he really was a foundational uh, actor in how fantasy has progressed, how science fiction has progressed and how the two have blended over the years. Drew, yeah, I was going to... Oh, sorry, go on. If you... Well, I was going to say, like, Misery and the Ma Magician is uh, the one where you have... Uh, it's the prismatic spray spell and the whole concept of you only have a certain number of spells that you yep. can cast during a day and then you have to rest and rememorize them. 
anyone who's played D&D or almost any computer game RPG is familiar with running out of spells and yep. having to rest to reimagine them. That comes from Vance. He was uh, and acknowledged in Appendix N of D&D when, when Gygax and Arneson created it. Yeah, and I, I, I do notice, or I think I notice, is that the Folio Society Book of the New Sun behind you? Yeah. Oh, gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> you just got Drew's attention. Yeah, yeah. So I was... I was looking at that. I was like, is that, I don't remember the cover. Is that Terminus S? Like, <laughs> Drew, uh, you, you're a writer. And uh, based on the short story that you just sent me over the weekend, a pretty darn talented one. Um, uh, so in fact, I should plug Inking Out Loud. Please go check out Inking Out Loud. And if you join their Patreon, you get to read Drew's writing, which is quite good. Um, anyway, Drew, how... What we what we just talked about for the last five minutes or so, how does this strike you as a writer? Do you have a sense of um, uh, of history when it comes to writing your own short stories and books, uh, or or is this kind of just the water that you're swimming in at the moment? Does that make sense? Like, are you conscious of this sort of history? You know, that's really interesting. In in a theoretical sense, yes, I'm very conscious of it. But when I sit down to write a story, it's not often that I am deliberately trying to write in conversation with something. Uh, I've only really done that a couple of times. But uh, I think part of it is that I never was really into RPGs or, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, anything like that. My earliest kind of interaction with, with that form was reading the Dragonlance novels by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman as a, I don't know, 11, 12 year old, you know, somewhere in there. And, and I, I knew, oh, this was based on a game they played, but I didn't know the game. I didn't understand how Dungeons and Dragons really worked until much later in my life. Um, now I've played like a couple of homebrew things, but it's not a, a major formative part of my genre education. And so hearing AP talk about this is really fascinating because I'm, I'm seeing all of these connections forming that make tons of sense, but that I wasn't really aware of simply because this, there was kind of a hole in my, in my fantasy history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I played Dungeons and Dragons for the first time on this podcast. I think it was episode maybe 34, 35, somewhere in there. People can go listen to me and Ryan play Dungeons and Dragons for the first time <laughs> extremely poorly, uh, but it was a lot of fun. So uh, yeah, that my history with it is uh, spotty at best. Uh, and that actually makes me want to ask you, AP, and I, I think this will be a fruitful road for us to go down eventually, uh, or maybe even right away. But what made you want to study this? What led you to this subject uh, to, to do your thesis on this type of thing? Where did this come from? Well, like a lot of people who read fantasy, I have always loved fantasy writing. And when I was a kid and I was reading like, uh, like David Eddings and David Gemmell, and you go, neither one of those is, is impacted by RPGs, or so you would think. Um, reading Tolkien as a child and loving Middle Earth and the, the whole creation of something fantastic, that there was this entire genre that I loved. And to be perfectly frank, a lot of academia doesn't particularly respect it but it was fascinating to me that any academic articles that I was reading at, uh, at that time when I was at university 
they always pointed to Tolkien. And I'm going, but you're, you're ignoring Forgotten Realms, Dragonlance, Ravenloft. You're ignoring all of those, not only that sort of franchise IP fiction, and all of the computer games that are based on it, and the writers of those books who inspired readers of those books to become authors themselves, that the players of those games who went on to become authors themselves, that this was an entire form of influence on the genre that wasn't addressed because it wasn't books. People always looked at it went, here are fantasy books. This is the tradition of how fantasy as literature has evolved. And you go, we don't live in a vacuum. We are connected to narrative in film, television, books and games and uh, computer games and board games, that we live in a sea of narrative. And we take these influences from everywhere. And so it's not never a neat connection. And anytime you see a neat connection, you tend to go, that's a little too neat. And so I, I was fascinated to see whether or not you could tease out at least some points of connection to this evolution of the genre, because what we have in the modern day doesn't really correspond to anything that Tolkien did definitively. It's it quite varied. Okay. So, yeah, and uh, going back to the beginning of that, I, I love this idea that uh, there, there's another writer that I was reading recently who started a book of his with um you know why do i write the way i do it's because frustration is a muse uh <laughs> you know he he would get he he'd get mad about some topic and need to go research it <laughs> so what i hear is um why isn't anybody talking about this fine i'll do it is that basically exactly. it and andrew i'm sure you have experienced this that you want to write the stories that inspire you that intrigue you yes you you've read something and you go you know what if i was going to write this i wouldn't do that i'm going to do something different your work even if you, you're not intending it to be in dialogue with specific work is uh -huh. always in dialogue with what has come before because it's in dialogue with what you have read absolutely yeah yeah it's a Look, I, I would say the one thing that is most um, present in my mind when I'm writing is, I, I would say, my particular style of prose and how I find it fascinating that I write so unlike many of my favorite writers. You know, my the the real formative, you know, foundational fantasy series for me was The Wheel of Time. I I picked up The Eye of the World when I was 11 years old and within you know a couple of months I had read the nine published books and and I was like I want to write stories because I read this series but I write completely unlike Robert Jordan I write completely unlike George R. R. Martin or Brandon Sanderson or you know whomever and if if anything if there's one author I, I say I write sort of like it would be Glenn Cook but that's really interesting because I had been writing books and stories for years that, before I ever picked up a Glenn Cook novel. That sound and, you hear, uh, dear listener, is the sound of Drew patting himself on the back. No, no. <laughs> Just because I write in a sparing style doesn't mean I'm as good as Glenn Cook. I'm messing with you. Okay, go on, go on, Drew. <laughs> um, but, but so there, there's an awareness when I sit down and put words on the page of how I'm writing and how it differs from 
the you know what has come before as you said uh although i want to kind of rewind a little bit and something that's been kind of niggling at my mind when we're talking about the evolution of fantasy and going from pre-tolkien tolkien and then you know going through this sort of filter of rpgs and then computer games ap especially i'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this do you think since the proliferation of visual media, there has been a fundamental shift in the style of writing fantasy to be more cinematic. Well, the, there are two points, actually, that it's a really good point to bring up. Uh, there are two different things. Firstly, uh, filmic and televisual representations and uh, consumption of media is a much more passive process than reading. Reading is much more active. But the more we have... Um, uh, readership that their predominant education in how to process narrative is from a filmic or uh, televisual medium, the more the market rewards writing that is written that way. And the same is with the commodification and genrefication of fiction. Like we, you were just talking about, oh, I write like Glenn Cook. And you go, well, I would have, if I was going to pick a point of comparative, you go, well, no, you're writing in that uh, instead of Faulkner in a Hemingway style, but filtered through war fiction right. from Vietnam and Korean war fiction. Uh -huh. That the element that Glenn Cook picked up on was he took that style of writing associated with uh, Vietnam war fiction written by veterans and wrote it in a fantasy world. But when we talk about fantasy, we tend to ignore all of the external aspects. Mm. And so, yes, there, there is an element of commercial genre focusing more on what is popular for a readership and that commodification and because of the impact of television because of the impact of film yes it, it does lend itself to um what we tend to reward in terms of more accessible or easier to read narratives and moves further and further away from what used to be valued about literature and um if you the number of fantasy readers now who say well have you read any of like Jane Austen or the Brontes or Charles Dickens. They go, why would I read that? Um, Faulkner, Hemingway, have you read that? Well, no, I only like fantasy. And it's because we are so time poor in the modern era, despite all of the advances, we are incredibly time poor and we find something we like and we want to replicate it. And one of the, the greatest educations for any author or any reader is to read outside your preferred genre because techniques and styles of writing that you think, oh, this author has just done this. This has blown my mind. No one has ever done this before. And someone who has studied literature goes, actually, and they are the well actually person, yeah. but they have a point in that that's a really <laughs> common technique elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And there is a cinematic element because that has dominated media discourse. We live in a narrative media landscape not just a literary landscape so is there a, similar to the fantasy literature genre as such tolkien casts a long shadow obviously yeah. uh, but on the film landscape and and we could talk about rpgs as well okay so obviously they're oh hey cat <laughs> drew's got a cat okay um <laughs> uh with rpgs we can talk about dungeons and dungeons and dragons all day long right 
And in film terms, there's the Jackson trilogy that came along in 2001. Uh, but am I missing anything film-wise uh, before Jackson or RPG-wise uh, after um, uh, after Dungeons and Dragons? Is there are, are there other touchstones that we should be aware of that have informed literature in the last uh, few decades? I would say well, okay. film noir has had a massive impact on genre fiction in general. Hmm. I'll give you I'll give you two examples. Uh, the first is scene transitions. In if you go back to a lot of older cinema, you'll have someone wake up and they'll go in, they'll brush their teeth, they'll uh, get dressed, you'll see them doing their tie, you'll you'll have them walking downstairs, they'll get in the car, they'll drive to work. Now we have a shot of the alarm clock goes off, they slap it off, and then the next scene is they are in work, and that entire scene transition is now implied. And um, Inception played with this, uh, where the reader is inferring what happened in between. Because if you think the number of films now where someone starts a conversation, you're driving along in a car and they go, they're talking about something, and then it cuts to them arriving at their destination and they're still having the conversation at that point. Because it's just a way to get rid of the boring car journey. But you go, if you think about it, they started that car journey that's half an hour long. They had a point. Then there's an implied half hour jump and they are still having that conversation. You go, no one carries on a cut. What did they just sit in silence for half an hour? And then now that we've arrived, yes, I'll just finish my point now. <laughs> so scene transitions and that excising of transitionary material has radically changed in literature as a response to how it has become popularized in film. That that's one of the implications. Um, I think one of the, the other points is, if you think of Jackson's Lord of the Rings, uh, and we talk about the fellowship, the creation of the quest group, um, one of the terms to refer to that is the Seven Samurai. Sure. Oh, look, quest formation in the Seven Samurai. <laughs> That's actually a term that we can use to describe it. Do you think that didn't have an impact? Or the Magnificent Seven? The film and television have been using the same concepts and people unconsciously or consciously borrow them, or if not borrowing directly from that, from other iterations, from other people who have borrowed it. The long sweeping shots that Jackson used for the landscape, Lawrence of Arabia, um, the English patient, like you have all, uh, all of these grand narratives that showed the landscape, particularly the Western, where the Western that placed the human figures as tiny in this grand landscape, all of those shots, that technique, that way of emphasizing the smallness of humanity against the grandness of the narrative, the Western did a lot of that. The use of all of these different techniques and film studies quite rightly focuses a lot on the Western because it developed the techniques that everyone else then was influenced by. And then they influenced other people. Yeah, oh, man. Well. I feel like I need to close up shop. This is too interesting. Uh, I, we, I, there's nowhere to go from here, but but down. This is too interesting. Uh, Drew, you look like you have a thought before I move on. You you look like you're ready to say something. I do have another question, but it can wait. No, I'm I'm just kind of considering um, how much we've talked about film and how much we've talked about um, the the shift in science fiction and fantasy since Tolkien 
and yet we haven't mentioned Star Wars. And, and AP, when you were mentioning so many of those movies, massive inspirations for how George Lucas filmed Star Wars. <laughs> you know, we, we have, again, a, a, a fellowship, right? We have our rogue and our warrior and our wizard and, and all of that. And then we also have the, the Western influences. We have the influences from Seven Samurai. We, like, Star Wars was sort of its own kind of sidetrack alongside D and D, and like trying to trying to think of how to put this. <laughs> Star Wars became such a ubiquitous cultural touchstone that it almost seems like it's just been removed entirely from from so many academic conversations. Like it's it's like it's too poppy, it's too popcorn. And, and despite that, there is all of this rich, uh, you know, literary value in Star Wars, how it, it spans back, it touches on things like the monomyth and, and spans generations of fantasy literature. Well, let me, let me put a point to you. Lucas was very clear that his structure for Star Wars, the narratological structure he was using, was an articulation of Campbell's The Monomyth. So if you're going to study what Star Wars does or what narrative is doing, do you study Star Wars or do you study the thing that Star Wars is based on? Mm -hmm. When you talk about space Western and the influences of the Western, do you look at Star Wars or do you go back to the Western that actually created these things? It's not that Star Wars is excluded from the discussion. It's that Star Wars is an articulation of the earlier points. So if you study the foundational points, then yes, you understand Star Wars. Mm -hmm. When you look at the formation of the Quest Party, that's not unique to Star Wars. So why would you study Star Wars for that? When you talk about space wizards with magic swords and magic powers, well, why not look at the articulation in Tolkien pre-Star Wars? Because that's an articulation of those points. So it's not that Star Wars is discounted, but Star Wars in a lot of respects, didn't refine any positions. It was a melange of previously existing positions. So yes, like I agree, right. Star Wars should be studied and Star Wars is interesting to look at. But how much of it was Star Wars articulating a position that then refined the genre? Because Star Wars covered itself in a sort of science fiction skin when everything about the story was fantasy. Yes. So, so uh, let, let me... Let me... Uh, it, it's not pushback so much as it is uh, just a, I, I guess, a, a challenging question here. And that is, what is our limiting principle when it comes to this? Because you can keep going and keep yeah. going and, and never come to any conclusions because it's like, well, yeah, but, but this, this person or this uh, film or this whatever did it. I mean, you go back to well, the Odyssey uh, had the Argonauts. Is that quest formation? And then you go back to the Epic of Gilgamesh and you're like, well, you know, there's a lot of stuff here that eventually there has to be a place where we can say, uh, you, you know, a lot of the stuff that is influencing, say, Drew as a writer, um, you know, he's, he's probably not consciously going back to the Epic of Gilgamesh and going, okay, what can I draw from this? Does that, does that make sense? How, when, when and how do we stop ourselves from, chasing that rabbit into the past well this is this is one of these big arguments in academia by trying to identify an er text the the mm. original text and the thing is you can't because no writer writes in a vacuum 
And there are always going to be other influences. But we talk about the sort of the general consolidation of a concept or an idea. You know, if you, if you want to talk about the, the start, when did postmodernism start? What was the exact date? What was the first postmodern text? And you will always have texts prior to that date that are doing things that now get described as postmodern, even though they were written during a modernist period or earlier. When we talk about the fantasy genre coalescing around a concept of Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's work, you go, yes, it, it sort of coalesces around that point. But that doesn't mean that George MacDonald Fraser wasn't writing fantasy or Lord Dunsany wasn't writing fantasy or J.M. Barry wasn't writing fantasy. Fantasy extends back. But when we talk about the formation, we're talking about a general consolidation or coalescence of a concept into a much broader and recognizable category. And it's not ever that you discount. And I hope I uh, didn't come across as saying, don't ever look at Star Wars. But you look at Star Wars in that conversation across yeah. multiple disciplines, multiple types of narrative and, and multiple um, genres. And it is part of that conversation and evolution. It is a key text. But whenever you do any sort of academic study, you always try to delineate and carve out a niche. And that's where definitional problems arise and why academics spend so much time going, I'm looking at this to this and only that. Yeah, They're not doing that because they don't know about anything else, but you have to find a way to limit the borders of the conversation. Otherwise, yeah, it, yeah, it goes on forever. Yeah, go on, Drew. Uh, so where I'm kind of coming down on Star Wars, like the, the most value that I personally would find in, in analyzing it is how it combines all of these influences and how, like you, you said, it's a melange of different things and how it inspired another generation to combine things like that in a- Like Frank Herbert's June. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, in, in a more it. pop culture sense, how much that has influenced the, what, what years, 2022, 45 years since- Star Wars came out, you know, and uh, <laughs> time is a flat right. circle. It's meaningless now. Yeah, it's it's, it's post 2020. <laughs> time has no meaning. Okay. And, yeah. and this is the thing about individuals. Like we as individuals can talk about what influenced us, but you know, if, if we isolate Star Wars, cause that is an influence on you. Mm -hmm. And then I go, but June by Frank Herbert, which obviously was a massive influence on Lucas. If I encountered June, before I encountered Star Wars, then I'm always going to see the precedent set mm -hmm. in June, not Star Wars as the precedent. Go forward 20 more years and the next generation looking at it and they'll go, well, Star Wars was a really old thing, but I remember Battlestar Galactica, the uh, miniseries. And you go, but Battlestar Galactica only existed because of Star Wars and Star Wars only existed because of June. And June only existed because of other planetary romances like John Carter of Mars. Yeah. Everything is a continuum and it is a constant evolution. And yeah, texts rise in importance for discussion and then fall away as new things replace them. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what I was trying to articulate about the impact that RPGs had on particularly fantasy in the 80s and 90s. Like people forget that uh, Andre Norton, 
female fantasy author was the first person to write an RPG influenced and based fantasy novel. That's almost always overlooked. When we look at uh, people go, oh, X author has been really influential. And you go, well, they sold uh, 100,000 copies. You know, that is that is an influence. Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman's Dragonlance sold much more than that. Yeah. But we don't look at it because, oh, well, that's just schlock and genre fiction. But right. look at the popular influence it had. And not only did it, is it just that series, it's all of the linked Dragonlance series. And then the linked Forgotten Realms and the linked Greyhawk. And then, and then, and then. People who read the Halo franchise novels, the Halo franchise novels wouldn't exist without Halo the game. Halo the game wouldn't exist without RPGs. And even that whole concept of the expanded universe you know, was, was kicked off by a lot of the RPG stuff. So basically what I'm hearing is that uh, when it comes to these genre stories that we all love so much, it's just a giant tangled ball of uh, yarns <laughs> so to speak, uh, it, it's just, it will never unknot it. So why not just give it a big hug, right? <laughs> so yeah. just, just love the ball. Uh, and, sorry, Drew, go on. Yeah, it, well, it's, it's funny because you know, when, when you talk about influence and, and how certain works are perceived as being more influential than others and, and that may not necessarily line up with book sales, uh, there are different sorts of influence. You know, there there's a cultural influence from something like Star Wars or Marvel or whatever that is just everywhere. And then there is a a an influence in creation, and that's where you get authors like Glenn Cook or Gene Wolfe, who really didn't sell very many copies in the grand scheme of things, but a lot of authors read them. And that's when you end up with a Stephen Erickson and a Joe Abercrombie and a George Martin and and Robert Jordan, you know, they're these guys who did end up transcending the genre and becoming the massive international bestsellers. And they built off of something maybe read by a, a fraction of a percentage of the people who read their books. And, and when you think of, say, Star, going back to Star Wars, an example, what about Star Trek, which yeah. preceded it? And in that you had the the... Uh, planetary landing party, the boarding party that went down of Scott uh, or of McCoy and Kirk and Spock going down with ancillary characters. Hey, and again, I was going to say, even, everybody forgets the red shirts. Um, <laughs> and, and also, we, we sometimes overestimate the number of red shirts who actually die. Because it's, it's then the popular consciousness and popular misremembering of things. Like, beam me up, Scotty. And you go, well... Mm, is that actually what he said? No, uh, but we have a popular almost misunderstanding of these things that then enters the popular consciousness, becomes part of the mythos and then gets replicated. And, and then you end up with that, red shirts by John Scalzi. <laughs> yeah, red shirts by John Scalzi. Um, because it becomes, I suppose, what's the common term now, memeable? <laughs> yes. That, uh, all of these things and direct influences on authors, indirect influences on authors direct influences on readers, indirect. And it is such a giant, uh, Bank Pratchett referred to it as a cauldron of soup or a, a narrative gumbo. He had various different ways he articulated this. And everything goes into it. And every author draws forth from a lot of the same ingredients, their own individual articulation. 
and to go back to the original premise of, of what we started with, the reason I did the thesis was not to say that Tolkien is no longer relevant. It was to bring into consideration another text that adds to our understanding. And it wasn't to say, don't look at Tolkien anymore. It's consider it from this position because that's actually quite revelatory. Magic systems, acquisitive quests instead of quests to get rid of something. You think everyone thinks of the quest, you know, they went and got rid of the ring. How many quests have you read where it's all about getting rid of something apart from Tolkien? Right. Right. Even very since. Good. Yeah. Even since it's not a very common thing. Um, so I, I have a question. I, I want to start uh, shifting gears and, and uh, we'll give this, you know, another five or 10 minutes of topic or of discussion on this topic. But um, let, me, let me ask, based on this, uh, all this, this, the narrative gumbo, the giant ball of yarn that we've been talking about, uh, there was, this is recalling to my mind, a uh, presentation that was given several years ago in Australia, I believe. Don't don't hold me to that, but I think it was in Australia. A woman who uh, was giving a talk to a, a, a crowd of folks who were, you know, like-minded to the three of us, I suppose, in their interests, and she was railing against Tolkien and the the gatekeeping, and we need to. Uh, how dare you expect me to uh, reach? I've never, I proudly never read Tolkien, and reject all of this. Um, uh the the uh impact that you say that he must have on on modern writers whatever it was it was a, a definitely a, an interesting and provocative talk that she gave shall we say but it, it so i was thinking of, of that and the question in my mind is can someone approach can can someone successfully write a story without reference to the gumbo uh or is like if somebody is uh, kind of uh, being reactionarily minded and saying, I refuse to read the stuff that everybody says I should read. I'm just going to write my own thing and do it without reference to these uh, you know, to these works that everybody talks about. Is that possible? Can they do it successfully? Is it is this stuff just the ocean that we swim in? and it's impossible to escape the influence of the gumbo. I'm calling it that now forever. So yeah. No, uh, Thank you Terry too. Goodkind did it. Remember, he doesn't, he doesn't write fantasy. He oh, writes that's real right. literature and he's never read any other fantasy. Oh boy, that's right, that's <laughs> the, right. The similarities between Sword of Truth and Wheel of Time were oh entirely gosh. coincidental. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Sure. <laughs> the similarities between Sword of Truth and Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, entirely incidental. Yeah. But to, to take a first stab, <laughs> if you want to not write what Tolkien wrote, then you have to know what Tolkien wrote. Yeah. So to write against something or to write something different to Tolkien, then you need to know what Tolkien wrote. Yeah. So it's slightly disingenuous to say, I'm writing my own thing that has nothing to do with Tolkien, when Tolkien has not only his body of work, but the influence that Tolkien has had on the rest of the genre. And that is not to say that authors don't have unique visions, but we are living in a very complex web of interrelationships, of influence and expression. Gumbo. We're living in gumbo. Yeah, but... China Mieville wrote against some of the stuff in Tolkien, very deliberately so. Yeah. So if you've read China Mieville, you've read something that's in dialogue with Tolkien, even if you've never read Tolkien. 
when you've read The Wheel of Time or The Sword of Truth, you've read something that was emulating aspects of Tolkien, even if it is not Tolkien. When you've read something that is arguing against a perceived notion in the genre, uh, so the Malazan Book of the Fallen deconstructed that sort of um, Anglo-focused or Eurocentric view of secondary fantasy. The Malazan Book of the Fallen argued against that. So if you've read the Malazan Book of the Fallen, you've read the counter argument or the counter example to a Eurocentric or Anglo-centric fantasy narrative set in a pseudo-medieval land. All of these things are in constant conversation and influence to greater or lesser extents. And it's not that anyone is saying that author is copying that author or that author is wrong to say that they're not doing those things. We live in a complex web of interrelationships between what we have read, what influenced those authors that wrote the things that we read, what influenced the authors that were read by the authors <laughs> that we read. And so it continues that it is a yeah. massive spread of this. And then when you add in film and television, if you've played any form of computer game, again, complex web of relationships. So, you know, that's, that's how I would, I would approach that initial point. So, this, uh, so it sounds like Dr. Strangelove and how I, or how I learned to stop worrying and, uh, and, and eat the gumbo. Uh, <laughs> just, it's just, there's no, there's no escaping it. And, you know, it, you know it, to, to engage is to interact uh, with these things, right? Yeah, uh, Drew, uh, or, you know, for both of you, actually, I'm, I'm going to take a hard right turn as we finish up this discussion and go way, way back to the beginning of our discussion. And, and forgive me, I'm pretty sure we talked about this in this discussion, but we tried it three times, you know, for the first five minutes. So <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure you talked about magic systems. And I want to go back to that. Okay, so I, we're, we're leaving this, uh, we're leaving the gumbo behind. And I want to talk about magic systems because you gave, this may be repetitive from the beginning of our conversation, but I, I want to make sure I get it because you gave some definitions for hard and soft magic that are slightly different from the way that we've talked about it on this show for years, um, at least if I understood you correctly. So I want to go back to that because I know that is, uh, that's part of this whole discussion, <laughs> again, rewinding back to the idea of, uh, of RPGs and video games and uh, their impact on literature. Uh, hard and mad, uh, hard and soft magic system, how do you define that? And then maybe we can riff off of that definition well, for a moment. Tell you what, why don't you give me your definition saying, as apparently I, I don't think about it the same way. So you give me your definition. Yeah, it's like I said, if there is a difference, it, it would be subtle, but, uh, but I thought I detected something. So a, a hard magic system is something that is, well, systematic. Uh, to put it frankly, whereas a soft magic system is not. But then the, the lines get grayed. Okay, so it, sorry, let me go back. A soft magic system, like you said, Gandalf just does things. It's just magic. He, you know, points at something and says, you know, be on fire. And, it, you know, it's on fire, whatever. Well, uh, no, or not Gandalf even that. that. Well, no, he just puts his staff out, right, and melts snow without uttering a spell or whatever. Right? Uh, whereas uh, Harry Potter would have to recite an incantation. But then that's where that gray area comes in. And, and that's where the definition gets a little fuzzy. Like in Harry Potter, is it a hard magic system because they're using spells or is it a soft magic system because we never have a definition for uh, the boundaries of 
that magic system, right? It, so a hard magic system maybe has those boundaries where a soft magic system lacks them. Is that as simple a definition as we need? Well, Drew, you're the, you're the creative person. How would you approach this? So I, I would approach hard versus soft magic systems in the sense that there are clearly articulated limits and mechanics for how magic is used and what it can do. Uh, and you know this, this goes to, um, I don't remember which one of them, but Sanderson's Laws of Magic, where he talks about how there's this relationship between what magic can solve and what sort of conflicts you write into your book. And a soft magic system is perfectly usable as long as you're not just using soft magic to solve all your problems, because then it's narratively unsatisfying. Well, and uh, for a particular type of narrative, because again, um, the sort of Sandersonian approach to fantasy narratives typically places magic very central to the core of the narrative, whereas Lord of the Rings does not. Magic is not at the core of that narrative. What are the spells that, or what are the magical effects that Gandalf creates? He makes uh, an illusion of riders and horses on the ford as Elrond does the magic of making the ford crash into the Nazgul. He makes his staff light up. I'm sorry, you could you know, do that with a Zippo. A lot of what <laughs> Gandalf does in terms of magic is not about active spell magic. It's not about active effects. It's not about replicable effects. It's much more numinous and almost religious. It's about a divine sense of power. Yes. But if we think of what Sanderson was articulating, first of all, this is by analogy to hard and soft SF. So it's not that Sanderson came up with this, comp uh, this idea. No, not at all. You know, in a vacuum, because it's a division that's been used in, in SF for a long time about extrapolation from knowable and explainable and explained aspects of science in hard SF, that you must abide by these rules. Soft SF, on the other hand, you don't because Star Trek is soft SF. They, how does a uh, the transport system work? They can give you a pseudo-scientific explanation, <laughs> but it doesn't actually correspond to our knowledge or understanding of the universe. Yeah. And then meanwhile, so, you have somebody like Samuel Delaney, who's writing pages of mathematical equations to explain what's going on in his books. Or Hal Clement and uh, Mission of Gravity, where all of that was based on his understanding of uh, gravimetrics and, and how they, that planet would actually work and how gravity would work. And someone actually wrote in and corrected one of his equations. And I think in a subsequent edition of it, he included that to go, yes, I made a mistake in how I calculated this. That's fantastic. But when we think of hard magic as a system, Drew hit it on the head. It's not just that it has rules and limits because lots of soft magic systems have rules and limits. One of the big distinguishing characteristics is not only that those rules and limits are made knowable and explainable to the reader, but also that it is usually quite central to what is going on in the narrative. Because Mistborn, perfect example, hard magic system. Well, apart, when, apart from when Vin absorbs all of that power <laughs> from the mist, slightly goes against the rules as they were explained to the reader and set up for the reader and delineated in the text. You go, so does that suddenly make it, it's not a hard magic system anymore, it's a soft magic system because that rule can just be thrown out the window. A lot of it has to do with the construction and focus of narrative. 
So it's not that anyone is better or worse. It's how they are used. You can have a hard magic system that is terribly used and constantly used all the time to solve problems. And you go, you can see that the whole narrative construct was to set up a problem solely to be solved yes. by that, mm. that thing. And you go, that's not satisfying either. Or you can have a soft magic system that provides very satisfying conclusions because it does something different. It is about sometimes about inspiring awe and wonder about the power of magic. In Malazan, magic is used almost very consciously as a, uh, an analogy for power. And yet there are very clear rules that both Erickson and Esselman are aware of. They just don't make them explicit to the reader because it is not necessary. It's not the focus of the narrative. But those, that magic in Malazan has rules. Harry Potter doesn't have rules yeah. because magic just does what is narratively convenient. Um, none of it makes any sense. There's no cohesion to it. Does that make it bad? Well, it makes it a bad, hard magic system, but that's not what it is. It's a soft magic system. Right. Oh, man. Now, I, I'm curious, uh, this is sort of tangential to, to this idea of hard and soft magic systems, but going back to the progression of magic systems as a thing, you know, you mentioned Jack Vance earlier and, and how we got this idea of finite spells, things you have to relearn, rememorize. Um, and, and of course, very much inspired by Jack Vance, the book of the new sun, where you have this phenomenon, the, you know, sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. You know, there, you, you find yourself wondering while you read the book of the new sun or, or while you read the dying earth, is this magic or is this just some inscrutably advanced technology and you get the lines blurring between science and magic and now we've almost come like done a complete 180 where magic in in something like mistborn or or the stormlight archive is it's magic but it's almost indistinguishable from science because it is so hard so clearly delineated what these things can do and we have scenes in the Stormlight Archive of people approaching magic using the scientific method, you know? But, okay, so <laughs> there are a couple of, a couple of interesting aspects about this because, the, the, again, a lot of it comes to do with narrative focus. So you could say that wish magic, uh, just wishing things, is a very soft magic. You can just wish things. But you can construct a really interesting and brilliant fantasy story about and using wish magic because the wish was not properly formulated or the unforeseen consequences coming from the wish. Yeah. When we think about uh, Sandersonian's uh, or Sanderson's approach in the Stormlight Archives, Sanderson, as gifted as he is, cannot come up with a complete understanding of all of the potential ramifications of that magic system because he is only one person. No one yeah. can understand the full ramifications of secondary world building. But also, how unique is that? And you go, well, it comes from a divine source that is then put into a battery form and then gives you access to one of three levels of power. And you can talk about it, well, it's essentially either divine magic, clerical magic from D&D, &D, or where you have a magical battery that you can create, 
Or you could look at it in terms of an, an analogy to solar energy and how we manipulate that. But like all of these things, it, it all depends on the different ways we look at it and perceive it. And we don't view um, soft, well, I, I think you don't view identifying soft magic or identifying hard magic as the thing. That helps you describe what is in a narrative. It is never the key aspect to how you're going to enjoy the narrative because characterization, plot, story, uh, world building and secondary world elements, the creation of a story world, the narration, the narrative style, the prose, all of the, the sound, tone, um, all of these different things are how you are, are the things that affect how you like or don't like a book. Whether yeah. or not it possesses magic, be it hard, soft, be it systematized, is never the defining thing. It's only ever one element. And depending on how strong that element is, you can look back at, was it Master of the Five Magics that detailed different ways to approach magic? Again, post-RPGs. We can look at what Vance did and we go, but that's not a hard magic system. It just said that was limitations on yes. magic. And limitations can apply to soft and hard magic. Limitations can apply to technology because one of the problems with a lot of uh, well, one of the issues I had with Star Trek Discovery is not understanding the ramifications of the technology and when technology just hand waves an answer. Um, limitations are so important for writers because it gives them something to write against. It gives a framework to argue against and find a way around that leads to and inspires greater creativity. And it's those limitations that are far more important, I think, than whether or not it is systematized or whether or not it is made explicit to a reader. Yeah, like how how Brandon Sanderson uses hard magic in his stories, very often the central problem to be solved is the magic. It's Elantris. Why is the magic broken? How can we fix this? You know, um, Mistborn. Why is the Lord ruler the way he is? How do we beat him? You know, and it's it's focused on the magic. And so the magic becomes the problem to solve rather than using the magic to solve problems. And like we have that with Tolkien has a world in which magic is integral. You have elves that can live essentially in general forever. And you go, well, how do they do that? Oh, that's because they're magical. Well, okay, show me, show me on this diagram where their magic is coming from. <laughs> you go, no, we don't, we... <laughs> show me on the doll where the magic touched you. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, the Balrog, it's this demonic end. Like, even in um, like one of the jokes about D&D, you've walked into a room, it's a 10 by 10 room and there are 12 orcs there. What, they've been inside this locked room forever. <laughs> like, when they go down into Moria, what are all of the goblins and orcs in Moria eating? Where, where is their food coming from? There is no food anywhere in Moria. Are they just chewing rock? Um, but when we see Jackson's representation of Gondor, you look at Gondor and go, well, how are they feeding themselves? There are no farms outside Gondor but we all know when you read the book Tolkien was very specific about putting farmland in in front yeah. of Gondor the writers of Rohan live on these plains of grass where where are the herds of horses and cattle and the food we have willing suspension of disbelief and the important part about that is willing if you are yes. not willing to suspend your disbelief you can pick holes in any narrative construction I can pick holes in Sanderson Tolkien 
Ericsson. I can pick holes in any of their worlds if I am not willing to go with it, to follow it. And we all have different thresholds for where that willingness disappears, where our, self, uh, our suspension of disbelief can be shattered and remove us from that immersion. I think that right there is probably the best place to end this. We could go, it sounds like we could go for a long time. And I'll be <laughs> yeah. honest, this is one of those dream episodes as a host where I get to just kind of like, eh, throw a little question out there and watch the two of you go nuts for 10 minutes straight. And then, oh, okay, I'll throw <laughs> another question at you. Uh, this, is, this has been really fascinating. And AP, you've been very generous with your time uh, and you as well, Drew. Thank you both so, so much for this. Uh, this is uh, an episode that I will be returning to myself a lot. I, I think I'll be listening to this one a lot. So yeah, I really appreciate it from both of you. And, and thank you so much for inviting me on. I am sorry, it my, must be my end of technology that ruined everything. And that's led to this ruining your day. So thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> no, nothing can ruin, nothing can ruin today. Uh, it's my birthday, which I'm happy to say because uh, it'll be too late by the time this comes out in a week and a half. No, it's happy long birthday. Past. Thank you. And, and nobody can do anything about it because it was a week and a half ago when you hear this. So um, and, well, hang on a sec, hang on a sec. Okay. If you told me it was your birthday, we would have asked far more questions to you to get your input. <laughs> we would be celebrating that. The two of us are just wittering on here. No, here's, but the thing is, uh, I, I am one year older, which means I'm one year wiser uh, in understanding <laughs> that I don't know nearly enough about this stuff to keep up with the two of you. So it's been my pleasure to, to uh, hear you guys talk about it. It's been really, really fascinating. Um, AP, I've told everybody, go check out A Critical Dragon on YouTube. Just search that. You'll find the channel. Uh, is there anything else that you want to, uh, to give a shout out to from your work or anything that you want people to check out? Well, it, it would be really great if people did come and, and visit the channel. The, but the one thing I will say is my channel is about discussing these things. It's not about me having the answer because very rarely is there a right answer. So I, I typically have a lot of videos where I'm discussing topics, not saying this is how you must. Mm. And, you know, obviously I have my personal preferences and, and biases and prejudices like everyone else, but I really appreciate a uh, discussion about these topics. So um, if people want to come and have a look at the videos, that would be brilliant. But if it's not your thing, then Congratulate. There's so much out there. Engage <laughs> with other YouTubers, engage with other podcasts, read more, read fantasy books and science fiction, as well as classical fiction, mm. read everything, experience everything, because that is a brilliant education. Here, here. Drew, anything uh, besides inking out loud that you want to tell people about? Um, no, probably not. Uh, okay. I, un unlike AP, I'm going to say only listen to inking out loud. <laughs> Okay. Cool. So, no. uh, thanks for saying that on my channel. I yeah, exactly. That. Yeah, That's everybody great. jumps ship from the legendarium over to Aching Out Loud. Yeah, <laughs> uh, as if we don't already have like nearly complete overlap from the Aching Out Loud audience also listening to the legendarium. <laughs> <laughs> the Venn the Venn diagram is a near perfect circle. So, um, yeah, thanks uh, thanks to both of you, and thank you to everybody who's listening and watching on YouTube. Uh, yes, please like, subscribe. All the uh, yes, I'm a YouTube whore now. That's fine. I I, I'm, I can accept that moniker. Like and subscribe. Uh, check out the podcast. Please go to thelegendarium.com for all the reasons I mentioned up top. And uh, through AP, I look forward to another discussion between the three of us in the future. But you guys, for now, have a good one. Yeah, thanks, Craig. Bye-bye.